Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons, and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. I'm Victoria Kay, welcoming you to another episode of Anchored by Truth. I'm in the studio today with R.D. Fierro, the founder of Crystal Sea Books. R.D., Obviously, from the scriptures we've just heard, we are continuing with our series on the story of Noah. Are we going to discuss more about how the flood account from Genesis has something to tell us about God's plan for the world? Well, yes, no, and sort of. Today, I want to continue the discussion about Noah and the ark and the flood account in the book of Genesis, but I want to take a look at it from the standpoint of how that account, the flood account, stands at the intersection of science, history, and the Bible. 
And this is something that we're going to talk a lot about on Anchored by Truth. But to get us started, let's listen to another of Crystal C's Life Lessons with a Laugh, where we take a humorous look at some of the details of Noah's story that are often overlooked. Sounds good to me. Hi, I'm R.D. Fierro from Crystal Sea Books, here today at a new location as we continue to focus on the life lessons we can gather from the story of Noah and the Ark. I think you mean Noah. Uh, That's the more mundane pronunciation. And what is that smell? Given our exotic setting, I went a little upscale. Upscale? I wish I were upwind. Yikes! Is that an ostrich? There are dozens of them in this pen. An emu, my ornithology challenge chum. My bird-befuddled bud. My pheasant-flustered friend. Uh, don't tell me. It's right on the tip of my tongue. Uh, Your nose should be telling your tongue it's time to step outside. It's Jerry. Sure, Jeroma. Jerry. Now that's a name that will perfume your day. And I'm going to need some kind of perfume if we're going to be here long. Just long enough to absorb the aroma and atmosphere of the emu pen here at Aunt Ida's Emu, Eggplant, Endive, and Eugenia Emporium and Eatery. I thought this setting would inspire us to contemplate the vast variety of variegated vegetation environments that currently exist on the earth thanks to Norbert's inspired seamanship. Still think it's Noah. And the only thing I'm inspired to do right now is buy an ark full of air freshener. Well, I think our setting has already inspired you to a fresh insight, Jeroma, because that would be a lot of air freshener. Do you realize that according to the dimensions described in the Bible, the ark would have had the capacity of about 2,000 railroad cars, each of which could hold 80 to 100 sheep? Wow, that's a huge boat. But I think it would take that much freshener to put a dent into what I'm experiencing. Excellent, Jeroma. You have just pointed out another thing about Noah's experience with the flood and ark. The atmosphere inside a sealed vessel toting that many animals would have been, mm, shall we say, pungently fragrant. Shall we say I would have wanted to sleep on deck? Perhaps not the best place for repose while gale-force winds and skyscraper-sized waves are lashing the deck, my nasally delicate mate. But the Bible says the rain only lasted for 40 days, whereas Noah and his family were in the ark for over a year. So maybe there was a chance for some shuffleboard topside after the rain let up. Yeah, inside a sealed boat for over a year with your family. I hope they all had brought some really interesting reading material. Well, they may not have had a lot of spare time on their hands, Jer Bear. You know, they probably had quite a few things occupying their attention. There being a fairly large passenger list of animals that needed watering, feeding, and tending and all. Not to mention stall cleaning, which wouldn't be a bad idea around here either. Ah, your keen understanding of the finer points of animal husbandry is certainly on display today. Of course, for some of the critters, the crews must have been pure bliss, like the dung beetles, for instance. After all, the Bible says there were two of every kind of land animal, as well as birds and creepy crawlies that came on board. Yeah, it would have been okay with me if they had left off some of the creepy crawlies. Like the ancestor of that big one on the wall over there. How many animals do you think booked passage? Can't be certain, Jerkat. I'm not an expert on mid-third millennial B.C. zoology, mammalogy, entomology, and ornithology. Whoa. What was all that? 
Zoology, mammalogy, entomology, ornithology. Zoology, mammalogy, entomology, ornithology. Zoology, mammalogy, entomology, ornithology. Zoology, mammalogy, entomology, ornithology. But even today, there are less than 300 main species of land animals bigger than sheep, and only about 700 species between sheep and rat-sized. There would have been plenty of room on board a boat with space for almost 200,000 sheep, even with carrying all their food. Still, space planning must have been a real pain. Probably not the best idea for some pairs to share cabin space with others. Plus, imagine the dining room at mealtime. No, you can't seat the anteater next to the ants again. Remember what almost happened last time? Thankfully, the zebra stepped on the anteater's tongue when he was going around the porcupine. Anywho, the Bible is clear that the whole voyage was the Lord's idea, so I'm pretty sure he was helping Noah with the details, including how to make sure the right animals got on board and got along during the trip. Hmm, you don't think about that much, do you? That even though the Bible says that the Lord shut them in the ark, that doesn't mean he stayed on the outside. Exactamundo, giraffe. No matter how much the storm rages outside, the Lord has always promised he will stay with you, inside or outside. Topside, portside. Hey, what's that buzzing light in your pocket? Aunt Ida's system for letting me know my emu egg omelet is ready inside the eatery, where it smells like bacon and cinnamon buns. Ah, Germay, your knack for knowing how to nullify your nutritional needs never nosedives. Life may stink and drive you to the brink, but obey God's command and he'll provide a fan. So don't blink at the stinks, Brink. Stand on his plan and obey his command. Again, Jerbon, some tasty bites of truth out of that big box of gooey buns of biblical wisdom. The secret is to make sure your hands are clean so you can lick your fingers to get all the icing. Well, that's it from Jeremy. Oh, and it's still Jerry. Me, R.D., and the whole Crystal Sea Emu crew for today. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com where... We're not famous, but our boss is. Okay. That piece has some truly amazing parts. First is how many different variants you can manage to come up with for Jerry and Noah's names. And second was the information about the actual cargo capacity of the Ark. I'm sure some people would wonder where those numbers came from. Well, that particular life lesson uses a cargo capacity estimate for the Ark that comes from the Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties, written by Dr. Gleason L. Archer. Dr. Archer is now passed on, but he was a magnificent scholar of the Old Testament, and he was truly a gifted both Bible scholar and theologian. And Dr. Archer, who was fluent in ancient Hebrew and Greek, would go back to the original documents and do his own research when he was trying to resolve difficulties about a particular passage. Dr. Archer then used an estimate for the biblical term cubit in modern-day terms of about 24 inches. Now, there is no universal agreement among biblical scholars about how long, again, in today's measurements, a cubit actually is. And estimates tend to vary somewhere between either about 15 inches all the way up to 24 inches. Dr. Archer used the 24-inch estimate as the length of a cubit. 
Now, some people might be familiar with the Ark Encounter exhibit where a group built what they consider to be a full-size replica of the Ark in Kentucky, and people today can go up and visit it and walk through it. And the estimate for the size of a cubit that they used when they were developing and building the Ark Encounter was a cubit that was a little bit shorter than 21 inches. So whereas in the Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties, Dr. Archer was thinking about a vessel that was about 600 feet long, the Ark Encounter has a vessel that's a little over 500 feet long. Regardless of which particular estimate for the length of a cubit that we used, one of the points is that the Ark would have been a huge boat, and it would have had significant cargo capacity and carrying volume, certainly enough to carry eight people and supplies and stores for them, as well as potentially for the few to several hundred animals that might have been on board. So the Ark's immense cargo capacity helps address one issue that's often raised about the truth of the flood account. But size isn't the only reason the Ark's dimensions are so important, is it? No, the Ark's dimensions as given in the Bible give us important information, not only about its size, but also about its stability. The dimensions given in the Bible for the ark were 300 cubits long by 50 cubits wide by 30 cubits deep. For those people who are familiar with ocean-going vessel design, they immediately see that the ark possessed the classic 6 to 1 ratio that is a staple of modern naval architecture. In other words, the ark was six times as long as it was wide. And this kind of design parameter is used because it produces a vessel which is very stable, even in an ocean environment and even on rough seas. And in fact, scale models of ARC-type vessels have been built and tested in research laboratories around the world. Back in the 1990s, there was a very famous test that was done in the Korea Research Institute of Ships and Engineering's large towing tank, where a scale model of an ARC was built, and it was tested in that tank against waves of varying sizes to determine how big a wave could a full-size vessel with those dimensions withstand. And one of the interesting things about the tests that were done in the 90s in that Korean engineering facility was they not only tested the ARC's dimensions for wave stability, but they also tested other ship designs for stability in rough seas. And it turned out that the ARC's dimensions actually produced the most stable vessel of all the ones that were tested. And according to the tests that were done in that facility and in others subsequently, vessels shaped like the ARC, using the ARC's dimensions and with the ARC's parameters for size, buoyancy, other factors, probably could withstand waves that were well in excess of 100 feet. So even with the worldwide inundation that was going on with some very rough seas and hurricane-style winds, even in such a hostile environment, a vessel shaped like the Ark and of the Ark size would have been able to remain stable and upright throughout the entire episode. Okay, so this is all pretty interesting. I mean, I think a lot of people know the Bible contains the Ten Commandments and some other moral instructions. But a lot of folks today have probably never focused on the fact that the Bible contains an amazing level of historical fact and detail. I don't think most people ever think about the huge volume of information of all types that's present in the Bible. Well, I'm tempted to say bingo, because that's exactly the reason that we wanted to do this Anchored by Truth series. And it's the reason that we want to do the life lessons with a laugh. We'd like for people to, if they're not already reading the Bible, 
to rediscover the Bible. We'd like for people to go back to the Bible and discover all of the benefits that reading the Bible can bring to their lives. The Bible isn't just a book of moral instruction and information, which it certainly has that, but it's a book that contains history, it contains poetry, contains practical instructions about daily living. In fact, some commentators have observed that the Bible has more to say about management of money than it does to say about what heaven is going to be like. The Bible is just an amazing book. But even though it is an amazing book, we live in such an information-rich age, and the Bible has been a part of our cultural background for so long, that I think a lot of times people just don't spend the time with it, maybe even that they'd like to, maybe even that they want to, but there's just so many distractions in their daily lives that they just don't have the time to delve into the Bible the way that they want to. So when you said you wanted to begin to discuss the intersection of science, history, and the Bible, this is part of what you were talking about. The Bible is a book that contains a lot of history, and the overwhelming bulk of that history is verified by historical sources outside the Bible. And you're saying that the same thing is true of the Bible's discussion of matters that pertain to our physical creation. That's exactly what I'm thinking about. The Bible describes the creation of the universe. The Bible describes the creation of everything. And then, of course, the Bible goes on to describe various events that occurred within history, and some of those events obviously are going to pertain to the physical creation. As a consequence, the Bible is making statements that would fall within the province of science. Now, I don't think it's fair to say that the Bible per se is intended to be a science book, but I think it's fair to say that certain events and historical episodes that occurred within the Bible are going to have a scientific dimension to them. Let's take a simple example. Everybody knows about the destruction of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by fire and brimstone being rained on them from the sky. Well, archaeologists have found the sites of Sodom and Gomorrah. The modern names are Babel Drah for Sodom and Numira for Gomorrah. Archaeologists have determined that both of these sites were destroyed at the same time by an enormous conflagration. And when they unearthed the sites, they found out that the destruction debris was a layer that was about three feet thick. So, of course, the question immediately is, what could have brought about such an enormous calamity that two cities, two good-sized towns, were destroyed at exactly the same time in such a way that there was this immensely thick debris layer on top? Well, of course, the Bible tells us the answer before we even ask the question. It says that fire and brimstone that was sent by the Lord destroyed the cities. But there was a geologist named Frederick Clapp who actually made a startling discovery that helped support the biblical account. There is a lot of evidence that in the vicinity of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, there are subterranean deposits of a petroleum-based substance called bitumen or bitumen, and it's a substance that's very similar to asphalt. And this kind of material contains a very high percentage of sulfur, which means that it's very inflammable. Well, Dr. Clapp speculated that pressure from an earthquake might have caused those bitumen deposits to be forced out of the earth through a fault line. And if as that material was gushing out of the earth, it was ignited by a spark, it would have fallen to earth then as a burning, fiery mass. And of course, the Bible provided some further amplification for the fact that it might have been a mass of petroleum-type substance that had rained down from the sky to destroy the sites because it says that Abraham viewed the destruction of the two cities from a vantage point that was west of the Dead Sea and that he saw dense smoke rising from the land. 
Well, dense smoke is the kind of smoke that you would expect from a petroleum-based substance which had just landed in a huge fiery mass. So while the description of the historical event of Sodom and Gomorrah is not intended to be a scientific description, the details of the historical account that are contained in the Bible are verified by current archaeological finds and are verified by what we know of the geology that's present immediately within the area. So there is scientific confirmation for many of the details that are contained with the Bible stories. But there are some obvious points where contemporary science and the Bible seem to diverge. Absolutely there are, and we fully recognize that. And unfortunately, one of the biggest points of divergence is right there at the beginning of the book of Genesis. Contemporary scientific thinking tells us that the earth is billions of years old and that the universe is even more billions of old beyond that whereas the opening chapters in the book of Genesis talk about the creation of the earth and the cosmos within a six-day period of time. And then you follow on the six days of creation with the genealogies that are contained within the book of Genesis, and it points to an earth and a cosmos that are more on the order of several thousand years old than several billions of years old. There are some Bible scholars that try to close that gap by pointing out that the Hebrew word yom at some points in the Bible is used to refer to an indeterminate period of time, much as we would use the English word day sometimes to refer to an indeterminate period. We might say that in our day such and such is going on. And when we talk that way, we're not talking about a specific 24-hour day. We're talking about a period of time that is indeterminate, but contemporary to the period in which we are living. I think we need to distinguish between science and scientists. Science is a body of facts and information, evidence, that can be analyzed and can be assessed by a wide variety of observers. By distinction, scientists are people. Whereas science concerns itself with facts and evidence, scientists are people. And I think the notion that every scientist in the world approaches their work wearing a white lab coat and thinking only dispassionately and objectively about the evidence or the information that's before them, I think is a little bit naive. And I think it's been demonstrated pretty much conclusively that scientists can have agendas too. The only distinction I'd like to draw is that we need to be very careful about whether we're talking about the facts and the evidence or whether we are talking about the interpretation of the facts or the evidence by a particular person. Certainly, the facts and the evidence need to stay in the forefront of our discussions all the time, but to simply assert that because this person or any group of people says that the science, the facts, or the evidence must be subject to a particular interpretation, I don't think that's fair to either side where there is disagreement or divergence. Okay, I think that's fair. But before we close, let's circle back to Noah. The story of Noah is an important episode in the Bible because it is a historical event, but it also contains or implies a number of things of scientific interest. I mean, a worldwide flood would affect the earth in dramatic ways, so evidence would be left behind in the earth's shape, its crust, and its geology. So that's evidence that we can gather and examine to help make a determination about the validity of the Bible's truth claims. Absolutely. 
You could not have the kind of catastrophic inundation of the earth by the fountains of the deep breaking up and the torrential rains coming down for 40 days and covering the whole earth in water that at some points would be rapidly moving on its own or being whipped by hurricane-style winds. You could not have that kind of an event occur without there being a body of evidence left behind. And the good news is that from geology and paleontology, we can actually look and see some of that evidence today. This is a subject that has been widely studied and it's been widely written about. So there's a lot of information that we can go and look to to make our own determinations about whether the event occurred. Now, I've actually heard people say, well, geologists tell us that there has never been a worldwide flood. Again, I think what they're doing is confusing the science with the scientists. Certainly, there are geologists today who do not believe that a worldwide flood has ever occurred, and they'd be able to make a good case for why they believe that's true. But there are also competent geologists who believe that there is geological and paleontological evidence that a worldwide flood did occur, and they would be able to make a good case from the evidence for their side. So we have that distinction between science and scientists. The only appeal I would make is that for fair-minded people to consider both sides of the question and not just to make a determination after they hear one side. So while science can shed really important light on the episode of Noah from Genesis on whether a worldwide flood ever occurred, we need to be very careful about saying that science proves something one way or another. Science cannot provide us with dispositive answers to all the questions that we're ever going to ask. Historical questions have dimensions that simply fall outside the realm of science. Well, as you said, that will be a discussion we will continue next time. Sounds to me like a good time for a prayer. Today's prayer comes from another one of Crystal Sea Book's offerings, the book Purposeful Prayers. A Prayer for the Nation Almighty and Sovereign Father, you are the one true and perfect ruler of all that is and all that ever will be. The stars move at your command, and the cosmos stretches out by the works of your hands. If the heavens themselves and all they contain are ruled by you, then how much more are the nations of men subject to your eternal reign? Lord, we come to you today to pray for our nation the United States of America. In our Pledge of Allegiance, we pledge that this is one nation under God. May it truly be so. May our people recognize that we owe our existence to you and that you are the rightful master of this nation and indeed all creation. Nations rise and fall at your command for you ordain and govern all the affairs of this world. We pray, Lord, that this nation might find favor in your sight as we turn and look to you. We know that there is much about our nation and people today that does not please you and does not conform to your will. Forgive us for this, mighty Lord. In too many ways we have wandered from the truths upon which we were founded. We repent of our wanderings and especially the part we have played in them. We have too often lost sight that we will all be held accountable to you, and this has led to foolish pride and unwise presumption. Bring us to a renewed sense of your holiness and justice, and help us to rebuke our failings. 
Help us to humble ourselves so that we may begin again to walk straight paths as we depend on you. Lord, there are many other nations and groups in this world that would seek our harm and even our devastation. Even now, many conspire against us. We pray that you would not allow them to succeed. Do not let our stumbles become an occasion for their joy. We pray that you would confound them in their efforts to cause us harm and injury. We do not ask this on the basis of our goodness, but on the basis of your mercy. Do not let them become proud by granting them a victory as we struggle for restoration. Lord, give wisdom and instruction to our leaders at all levels, both civilian and military. Turn their hearts to you and bring them into direct contact with your transforming character. Remind them that they are your stewards and that all their authority comes only from you. Let the name of your Son be lifted up in our hearts as we rejoice in the restoration and salvation he brought. We glory and hope in his name, and it is in his name we pray. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is.